Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Popcorn and Compliance, podcast series where we take a look at movies and try to mine them for leadership and compliance lessons learned. I'm going to begin a series with my colleague Richard Lummis, where we're going to look at movies, and we're going to focus a little bit more on leadership than compliance, but we'll also talk about some of the compliance lessons learned that you can use as you move forward, moving up the ladder to hopefully become a chief compliance officer. It's going to be a fun series. I know you'll enjoy Richard's insights. He's got some great insights. Obviously, a little little bit different than Jay Rosen and Megan Doherty, but that's what makes this series so great. I know you will enjoy it. Today, we take up an Oscar-winning sports movie, Chariots of Fire, and what lessons from leadership can you draw? But first, a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we take up leadership lessons from the Oscar-winning movie, Gladiator. In these discussions, we draw what we hope for interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. We're continuing our series on Best Picture winners from the Academy Awards. And today we're going to discuss the 2000 Best Picture winner, Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, Richard Harris. It actually won five five Oscars that year for Best Picture, Best Actor for Crowe, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and Best Visual. I really like this movie. My wife really likes this movie. I've actually watched it a couple of times over the years after it came out. But where would you like to start in our discussion of the themes, Tom? I really enjoyed uh, this movie as well. Actually, probably maybe you give the storyline and then we can talk about some of our favorite scenes and then some of the lessons that we've been able to draw from this movie. The movie starts in the campaign in Germania with Emperor Marcus Aurelius and his general Maximus Decimus Meridius, who is the Russell Crowe character, fighting the barbaric German hordes after a more or less victory, a dying Marcus Aurelius tells Maximus that he wants him to become emperor and to save Rome and revert to a republican form of government. At that point, his son Commodus kills Marcus Aurelius and attempts to kill Maximus, does succeed in murdering his family, and he ends up as a slave in North Africa, becomes a gladiator under the tutelage of Oliver Reed's character Proximo, 
ends up back in Rome fighting in the Colosseum and uh, tries to lead an uprising that would overthrow Commodus and replace the Senate as the main government in Rome, but fails at that and is eventually forced to fight Commodus in a single combat in the arena. Commodus cheats by stabbing him before the fight. He successfully kills Commodus, but then dies in the arena. Yeah, so I had a a couple, and they really spoke to both the cinematic presence of the movie and the spectacle nature of the movie. And I wanted to start with the initial battle scene. I read somewhere, and I don't know if it's true or not, but there were more than 50,000 arrows shot in that initial battle scene. And at one point, literally, you would be fighting in the shade because the arrows had blotted out the sun. And that really, that battle scene with thousands of extras, I'm sure there were troops involved or some very large number of men, really the chaotic nature of Roman warfare, or at least warfare in the second century AD, that's one of the best presentations I thought of that, and how Maximus really was a great general going forward at that point and deserved the position that he had in the Roman army. But that just totally chaotic battle scene with arrows on fire, different types of arrows, arrows shot very high, arrows shot very straight, and the horses and then the Roman legions moving forward to me was a great representation of the insanity and chaos of a Roman era battlefield. So uh, that was scene one. Scene two is similar in nature, but it's in the Colosseum. And the they built a replica Colosseum, I think about 20% the size of the real Colosseum for these shots and these scenes. So they had to use a lot of different cutaway shots and I don't think they called it CGI when this movie came out. And then, but the scene was when after the first time Maximus fights in the Colosseum and he has the helmet on to hide his identity from the emperor's son, the Joaquin Phoenix character. And he is forced to take his helmet off and Comatus sees who it is. And Comatus immediately wants to slay him or have his guards slay him in the Colosseum. But the crowd, because of the way Maximus has fought, wants to spare him. And at that moment, it shows the power of the Roman crowd and how public opinion, even if only for a short time, can be swayed or could have been swayed in Rome to force the emperor to change a decision that he wanted to make. And I I recognize all of that's apocryphal, We're talking about fictional characters. Nevertheless, I thought that was a very powerful scene that demonstrated something we've talked about in other podcasts on this series, which is about the power of the populace of Rome to, if not dictate events, influence events. And so those are the two kind of scenes that really struck me in watching this movie. Again, for this podcast, I have to say that first battle scene First time I saw this movie, just blew me away with all those arrows in the sky. The first battle scene was incredible. One of the things that I actually felt cold because of the snow and the furs and everything. 
But the, the historical accuracy with the equipment, the armor, and the tactics, I thought, was first class. The other thing I'd like to point out is with respect to Rome and the Colosseum and so forth, I thought the special effects for this movie held up really well, despite being over 20 years old now. I think some of my favorite scenes were the ones with Oliver Reed as the gladiator entrepreneur. The scenes, especially the ones with Maximus, where he describes the life of the gladiator and the importance of winning the crowd and being an entertainer. And then there's a scene where Maximus tries to get him involved in the plot to restore the Senate. And his answer is, why would I want to kill Commodus? He's making me rich, and I'm just an entertainer. And he subsequently does join the plot and is killed. He act, it actually was his last role. He died during filming. So I'm interested what his character would have been if he hadn't died, and they, and they had to kill him that quickly. But anyway, the other thing I loved was Joaquin Phoenix's facial expressions during the, during the gladiatorial combat scenes. They're just wonderful. They show that he is truly insane, but in, a, in an evil way. I think the movie is, is <laughs> got some interesting life lessons. And Marcus Aurelius, I know you and I have both read his meditations probably several times. But what do you think about how that impacts the movie? And So it was just a small por- portion because Marcus Aurelius only lives or is present in the movie for a short period of time, maybe less than 10 minutes if we take out the battle scene. But anytime you have Marcus Aurelius in print or in movie, you're going to get some stoicism. And because you have to remember, he literally is the most powerful person on earth. He can have or do anything he wants anytime, yet he has dictated to himself a code to live by that we have explored in other podcasts on this series. And that still resonates with with many people today, with many philosophers today, with many business leaders today. For me, the power of Marcus Aurelius always exists, even if it's just to say I'm Marcus Aurelius on screen (laughs) and talk a few words about or hear a few words of some faux stoic philosophy. But the other couple of things that uh, I'm not quite sure we really have explored, perhaps, that I wanted to bring up, which is, and it ties a little bit into the first uh, battle scene and its power for me is that really the only thing even in Rome, even with the most powerful person on earth, even with the most powerful empire the world had ever seen at that up to that point in time, the only constant was change and constant change. And Marcus Aurelius was almost synthesis or rather thesis, antithesis, antithesis and synthesis, the dialectic as information comes in and he has to change. And then the decisions made and you change more information comes in. You have to change again, and you make the decision and do change. And that that the constant of a business leader are these. Re- and I know in an, I think in our last podcast I talked about why I found information so important for a business leader, but that's really it because every move is a series of recalibrations. Whether it be a merger and acquisition, whether it be a purchase, whether it be a new business line, or really you name the business decision, it's all a series of recalibrations to help you in the marketplace. It used to be your marketplace was your shareholders. Now it's expanded out quite a bit and we have stakeholders and we have multiple stakeholders. And it's not even a three-dimensional chess game anymore. It's a five-dimensional or maybe even more chess game. The only constant is change. And that finally, sometimes life is just isn't fair. And I suppose 
you and I probably are as well qualified to talk about that as any people are. But that's not really what matters. And my father always tried to to tell me it doesn't matter if you get kicked in the teeth. It's what do you do afterwards? And in many ways, that's, I think, valid. And it's what you learn from it. Whether you say there's no winning and there's no losing, only winning and learning lessons, or whether it's how you get up, it's if one door closes, another door opens and having the courage to walk through it, whatever the platitude you want to put around it, that in addition to the only constant being change, you have to move forward when things don't go as you planned or worse. Those were the things I drew from this iteration of Marcus Aurelius in this movie, but maybe wanted to see if you saw some different things. We'll be right back with more from 12 O'Clock High after a quick message from our sponsor. The is part of the reason that some of the characters are willing to risk death because under Stoic philosophy, death is regarded as inevitable and really almost a non-event. But you should live your life as though you were ready to die at any moment, which happened a lot in Rome, apparently, at least under Commodus. You never knew which moment would be your last. As to your point about information, one of the things I really not noticed as much was Commodus is a master of information. He has an incredibly good spy network and knows pretty much everything that's going on and who's involved, who's talked with who. It's not detailed in the movie, but he's he's almost a, a godlike figure in terms of knowing who's plotting against him, which, of course, is most people, so I guess that makes it a little easier. The other thing was the importance of an ultimate goal. The Senator Gracchus and, and Maximus, and I guess Marcus Aurelius, although, he, as you pointed out, he's on screen for probably 10 minutes, was to change Rome back to a golden era. And as we've covered in some of these podcasts, it really wasn't all that golden for most of it. So I think one of one of the lessons of this, even fictionalized, is you need to have a clearer idea of your goals. And basing them on some wishful idea of what could be may not necessarily be the best long-term strategy. I think there are also a fair number of um, straightforward business leadership lessons and I think some of these we've talked about in other contexts in this podcast series, but the you do have to lead and lead from the front. We talked a little bit about servant leadership in the most recent podcast. So that involves creating a great teamwork and really create an atmosphere for others uh, to succeed. I mentioned a little bit earlier, ties into life is not always fair, but there's no losing, only Learning and winning. Fortunately, it took me a long time to learn that one. But there's one that I'd like to focus on, and I'm not quite sure we have focused on quite as much in the past, Richard. And it certainly ties directly to being a gladiator or any other type of physical exertion, whether you're a professional athlete or a weekend warrior, but it's trained hard in practice. I'm not sure in the corporate world we talk enough about training hard and practice. And I don't mean getting out running stands or wind sprints or being in top physical condition at age 55, 45, 65, or anything in between. But if you have a disaster recovery plan, and I hope you have a disaster recovery plan, because if you live in the part of the world where Richard and I live, you can have weather events which could knock you out and have happened on a regular basis from snow apocalypse to a thousand year floods in a period of a few years. But it's not just having a disaster recovery plan. It's practicing your disaster recovery. 
It's not having a cyber security protocol of who to notify if you have a cyber attack. It's actually practicing it because if you are attacked or you're breached and you get a ransomware demand before you know the breach has occurred, you're in a big world of trouble. And are you then trying to figure out, do we call the FBI now or do we call them later? You need to have a plan for that, but you have to practice that plan. It's the same as something as simple as a Sarbanes-Oxley mandated whistleblower program. Yes, you have to have a whistleblower program, but have you ever checked your whistleblower line? One of the most famous apocryphal stories in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act world is where a company was about to, in their final settlement discussion with the Department of Justice, back when you used to meet in Washington, the DOJ lawyer excused herself, and it was a her. She went to her office, called the hotline, and got a non-working number. And there's just no excuse for that. Now, it's catastrophic. All apocryphal stories are based somewhere along the line in some basis of truth, but I don't know if that story is true or not, but you have to have a working hotline. But have you checked your working hotline to see if it works, let alone whether you're actually going to respond to it? But you have to have a policy. You have to have a protocol in place. And there are a wide variety of situations I hope we can take up on this podcast, Boeing at some point, because it turns out after the second 737 MAX crash. That was the first time the board had been notified by management. Of course, the board had read about it in the paper, but they weren't even notified of the crashes on a safety basis, Or nor did the board ask about the crashes. So that tells you it was irresponsibility on both management and the board. If you have a existential risk to your company because of the services or products your company provides, you need to have a protocol in place to manage that risk if you have a catastrophic failure. Bluebell Ice Cream was a one-product company, a ice cream and food product company. And when they had a hysteria outbreak, they had no mechanism to elevate that to the board of directors. And they were not only fined penalized so greatly, they paid over $60 million in a shareholder lawsuit and had to sell a majority of the company to keep going. So if you have whatever your product or service is, if there's a catastrophic failure and it can lead to an existential crisis, you need to plan for that. And that's a message, like I said, Richard, I know I went off on my office for a little bit, but I don't think we talk about that enough. And we don't talk about practicing whether you're a pro football team in the film room or whatever it may be, but train hard and practice for those truly potentially catastrophic events. One of the great stories that came out of Hurricane Harvey was the response of the grocery chain, H-E-B, who is now the model of emergency response. Studied them quite a bit, and they routinely practice emergency response. And it showed when the emergency came and lots of companies can learn from that. So that's really the message I wanted to try to communicate is one of the most important that I took away from this movie. That that is a great point that without practicing it, it's you have no idea if the plan's gonna work. You have no idea if your backup generator will start. That's not a very good backup generator. The HEB grocery store chain has really been doing some inspiring work and logistical flexibility not just in the event of hurricanes and tropical storms, but as a result of the COVID supply chain disruptions, which they have handled much better than some of the other grocery stores. 
That, that's a great point. And I guess the other thing is the teamwork. The only way Maximus survives the first battle in the, in the Roman Colosseum is through teamwork. And it helps that most of the other gladiators have had military training are used to working together as teams in that circumstance, which is kind of lucky, I guess. The importance of teamwork is also true with it has to be practiced. Unlike the scene in the, in the movie, it would be very helpful if they'd been able to work through some of the formations they were going to have to use prior to needing. On the subject of teamwork, I guess there are a couple of relationship, personal relationships with the Maximus character that we both found very interesting, one of whom is really the sole survivor, the character Juba from somewhere in Africa. But uh, what did you think about the relationships with uh, Maximus's relationships with Juba and Proximo? Juba is in many ways the sort of heart and soul of the movie in terms of its conscience. And he's also a slave and he becomes a confidant to Maximus and I think really tries to counsel from a conscience point of view. The Proximo character for both of us, I think, is almost beloved because of who it was. And it was his Oliver's last movie. So that that meant a lot, I think, as well. And they used a body double to shoot additional scenes for him after he passed away. But the Proximo character was also, I thought, grounded in another type of inner dialogue or at least dialogue that needed to be running throughout the movie, which was counseling that he provided to Maximus and the also his desire not to be a part of any revolt because you guys correctly noted Commodus made him a lot of money. So why would he want to interrupt his supply chain of need and his ability to supply gladiators from the from the front? And if I could just throw in, it wasn't because Commodus was having more games and they were slaughtering more gladiators as was they were moving the gladiators into the fighting army because the quality of the army had dropped so much. So they needed gladiators from the provinces, which they didn't previously need as much. So that's why Proximo was able to um, make so much money. But the Oliver Reed, it being his last movie, that made it even more poignant. And so Oliver Reed started acting in the early 60s, and he acted in many of the movies. He was a heartthrob at one time, and then he took the drinks. So that kind of led him down a different path. And uh, But he was still a favorite of many people, including myself. To have him in the movie, and, and when he did pass away, it made it even more poignant. But he did have lots of wisdom that he imparted to Maximus about running a business and preparing and that train hard and practice that I harped on for quite some time, I think really was, if it didn't come from Proximo, it was inspired by him. What were your thoughts? I agree. I'm delighted that the Juba character survived the movie and was freed, apparently. And he does provide a grounding and a personal contact. I mean, he actually saves Maximus's life by putting maggots in his wounds to clean the dead tissue. He does serve as conscience and grounding in the, the importance of their families. And his is still alive, but he'll never see them again. And Maximus is his dead, and he expects to see them in the afterlife, which is, of course, not a very stoic concept, but, but is important. But what are your final thoughts on the movie as a whole, Tom? Did it hold up for you after? It did, and you were also spot on that the CGI or whatever they called it back then in 2000, the special effects really, I still think, still held up. There was one scene about the one-third way through the movie where Comanus tries to kill him by pairing him off with the top 
gladiator, and then putting some tigers around him so that the tigers were all CGI. So I thought that worked. But as a cinematic movie, I thought it worked well in terms of business. I thought the movie held up well. As I mentioned before, I thought the special effects were still good. I found the the personal relationships good. The Oliver Reed character, of course, we discussed at length. But also the character of Lucilla, played by Connie Nielsen, trying to navigate the Imperial Palace and keep her son alive in the presence of a homicidal maniac of an emperor is a pretty affecting character as well. So yeah, if you haven't seen it in a while, I'd suggest you see it. One thing, I thought parts of it dragged a bit, that this is a movie that would benefit from a theater room or a large screen rather than just a television screen. And some of it was quite dark in the copy I was looking at. But but anyway, I think it was a wonderful movie and deserving of Best Picture that year. That's it for this time with Tom Fox and Richard Lummis. We hope you enjoyed this and will join us for subsequent episodes. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I hope you'll join Richard and I again as we continue to explore leadership lessons from classic Oscar-winning movies. I'd also like to tell you about a great new podcast series, which has premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. That's The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike D. Bernardis, we take a look at some of the top anti-corruption compliance enforcement actions across the globe. It's a great review of enforcement actions, literally 15 years old and coming forward, what they meant then, and what they continue to mean now, all on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.